0: Listening to episode two of Who made, my clothes?
1: Who made My Clothes?
0: An official fashion revolution podcast with me, Tamsin Blanchard. In the previous episode, we learned that when workers can speak out as one and demand justice, they can work to improve factory conditions and wages. But unionization is challenging. And in the next episode, we'll be looking at some practical ways local, national and international players can support change and bring about justice for garment workers globally. But for now, let's unpick what we really mean when we say garment workers labour in dangerous conditions for not enough money. Because the fashion industry is so complex and opaque, it hasn't been that easy to find answers. And that's what microfinance opportunities in association with Fashion Revolution are trying to do. Here's Carrie Summers and Ursula de Castro of Fashion Revolution to tell us a bit more about their take on the project and why it's so important. Ursula is the creative director of Fashion Revolution, and for her... This project is all about building a human connection between the people who make clothes and the people who wear them. Very much it's been about understanding the life and the struggle often of the people that work along the whole of the fashion supply chain, which is incredibly complicated, and finding a way to present those lives to the citizens and consumers in such a way so as to create empathy without pity. The results of the weekly interviews with 540 garment workers are fascinating. You can see the big picture of how workers are treated differently and paid differently between the three countries through the graphs and statistics. Carrie Summers is Fashion Revolution's Global Operations Director and co-founder. And as you can hear, she's all about the numbers But you can also understand the reality of working in the garment industry through the profiles of individual workers in each country, gaining a real insight into the financial challenges and other social challenges which they face every day. So Guy Stewart and Eric Noggle are the lead researchers on this project. Now the first thing Guy wants you to remember is this.
2: When we are talking about the stresses that garment workers face we have to keep in mind that not all garment workers are alike Uh, they are not a homogenous group.
0: Right these women's day-to-day lives vary from place to place and from individual to individual. Throughout this podcast we talk about India but we're referring specifically to Bangalore. Worker conditions vary dramatically from one region to the next. But there's one thing all 540 women in the Garment Worker Diaries project have in common. They're not paid enough. So in Cambodia, that means the equivalent of $3 an hour. But it gets worse. In
2: India, they're earning about $2.30 an hour. And in Bangladesh, they're earning $1.40 an hour. And that, again, is taking into account the fact that it's cheaper to live in those countries. So imagine yourself living on those amounts, $2.30 an hour, $1.40 an hour, in Manchester, London, Seattle, New York, Berlin, Tokyo.
0: That's not really enough to survive on. So how does this work?
2: In order to make ends meet, one of the things that the women do is they work many hours per week. In uh, Bangladesh, that adds up to around 60 hours a week on average. So often they're working many more than that.
0: 60 hours a week is 6 days a week, 10 hours a day. It's a little better in Bangalore in India, where the average working week is 46 hours and in Cambodia it's 48. But even then, it's a lot of hard work and for very little money. How would you get by if you only earned 2 or $3 an hour at your job? How would you pay rent? What sort of place would you live in? What sort of food could you afford to buy?
2: What we see in Bangladesh is that by the end of the month, many of the women are buying things on credit in order to get through uh, to the end of the month.
1: You know, buying on credit on its own sometimes is just a convenience. Maybe you don't have cash on you or, or whatnot. But what we see in the Bangladesh data is that women buy on credit more frequently the farther away they get from their last payday Uh, and so you can see that they they get they can get their check they can go to the market they can afford goods but as that month rolls on it gets a lot harder um, to meet their expenses so they start buying on credit more and more and more Uh, they build up these tabs and so by the time they get their next paycheck um, they have to go pay off the debt buy more food and then the process sort of starts again
0: that was eric chipping in there Now Eric and Guy have devised some research questions to understand how this cycle of food credit and debt affects these women's lives. Questions like...
1: You know, in the past twelve months, have you uh, have you had to cut back on your meals? Have you had to skip meals entirely? Do you go to bed hungry? Those sorts of things. And you know, in Cambodia, for instance, fifty three percent of the respondents have reported um, being food insecure during the past twelve months. In Bangladesh, that number jumps to sixty percent. Um, in India, where conditions are a little bit better, that number's lower. It's it's thirty three percent, but that's still if you're talking about a third of the people in a sample can't sometimes can't afford enough to eat i mean that's a that's a pretty salient um indicator of the sorts of stress that these these women are under and they're really deft economic actors i mean they know what they're doing they know that you know they need to minimize the amount of interest they have that putting them you know taking out debt or buying on on credit puts them in a precarious position because they know they need to honor those debts they want to be able to save they want to be able to do those things um But when they have to pay rent and make sure that their kids can eat, they're sort of forced into these more difficult positions. And so they teeter. If their factory closes down or they don't get a payment um, or, you know, somebody else in the household has a, you know, medical emergency, it can really push people over that, that limit. Um, And for women who don't have the ability to sort of tap into social networks, Cash transfers from friend, friends and family, or to you know, borrow a low or no interest loan, you know that can become very precarious very quickly.
2: What we do see, though, generally, is that the women who participated in our study, they have a fair degree of economic autonomy. They earn money, and they spend that money. They spend that money on behalf of the household. They're not spending it on themselves. They're spending it to pay rent, to buy food, um, and uh, to meet the everyday needs of their household. But it means that they are managing also the economic stress in- involved with that. They are, they are juggling, uh, making sure that there's enough money for food. They also have demands on the money from elsewhere, from other members of their family who may not live in the household.
0: Right. With the money comes the stress. Let's zoom out a bit to understand that last point Guy made about demands on the money from elsewhere.
1: Garment work is, is based on migratory labor. Uh, that's true in the three countries that we've worked in, um, you know, I'll, and what that means practically is that you have lots of women primarily who live out in rural parts of their countries and you know they might live in a family that does farming or that runs a small shop in their village. Um, but the stories that we hear, Frequently, is that the economic opportunities in those areas are not very good. Uh, sometimes, you know, a woman gets married, and her and her husband can't make ends meet, or you know, a woman is unmarried, living with her family, and the family is struggling to make ends meet on the farm. And so, the, these women travel from the, their you know, their home village to these these major cities. I mean, you know, Dhaka especially is a, you know is a mega city. Um, you know, it's a it's an incredibly dense and and chaotic place um, Phnom Penh is not uh, as dense as uh, as Dhaka um, but w- when you get there and you you look at Phnom Penh compared to the village you can see that it, it's a complete different way of life it's you know it, it's it's dropping somebody in the middle of New York City and saying you know find a job and have a good time um, and so when they they come Oftentimes that they're coming with the burden of either caring for their immediate family in addition to themselves and then paying you know, rents, which relative to their income are, are, are relatively high. Um, and so they're, they're forced into a situation in which they have to cut back.
0: And as we've already heard, that means cutting back on food. It means skipping meals, buying on credit. So, garment workers are dealing with a huge financial stress. And what about the physical nature of garment work? What challenges does that present?
1: It's not like these factories are investing in like ergonomic chairs and sewing machines and things. So, they're, they're. you know, sort of contorted over the sewing machine for a long time. And they're getting chronic pain as a result of that. And uh, I remember talking with one woman in India and, you know, she she was telling me about how her lower back hurt and, you know, how her arms hurt and her shoulders hurt um, from working in these conditions over and over again. And, you know, part of uh, sort of one of the side effects of working as, as much as they do is that if someone is having pain um, they or they're having some other kind of medical issue, they can't get leave from the factory to go deal with it. Um, so like 67% of women in India say that getting leave from their factory to go deal with any kind of medical issue is a really big problem. Uh, So these women are sort of forced to go find care where they can. They don't have insurance. Obviously, you know, we've we've established that they're sort of living on the edge. So I asked her, I'm like, what are you you doing about this pain? And she said, well, I went to the doctor. It's like, okay, what what did the doctor say? It's like, well, he gave me this cream and these pills. So I asked if she would be willing to show me the cream and the pills. And basically what this doctor had, had given her is uh, the the local equivalent of, of Bengay and Tylenol. Um, so she's going to have to put this stuff on, go back to work, and, and there's there's nothing that is being done that's going to help her alleviate this condition. Uh, and this is a woman who planned to work in the garment sector for, for years to come. And so this is just going to become a sort of a factor of her life. It's not like these women have insurance and can go see a physical therapist and get this worked out or go get a standing desk. I mean, those options just don't exist.
0: Chronic pain is a big problem for garment workers in every country. In addition to the pain, garment workers in Bangladesh often work in situations that would lend themselves to a major factory disaster.
2: Imagine going to work, you would like to think that when you went into your work building, you would always feel safe. Well, only 44% of our Bangladeshi respondents said that that was the case. Fires are a real concern. 40% of our respondents reported at some point Uh, during our study, that they had witnessed a fire.
0: Many of us have heard of the Tazreen Fashion Factory fire. This catastrophic fire broke out in 2012, killing 117 people.
2: Scenes of disaster in Bangladesh, where more than 100 people died as a fire swept...
0: Although this is one incident that made international news, Guy and Eric's research shows that such fires are far from unusual. So when a fire breaks out, what happens?
1: They don't have, you know, automatic fire systems. So somebody has to go run and ring a bell to let everybody in the factory know that there's, there's fire happening and they got to run with the buckets to try to put the fire out. And if they don't, you know, the emergency exits aren't in great shape. A lot of these buildings have structural flaws. And, you know, that's how you end up with situations like the Tazreen factory fire. So some of these stories that we hear in the news about working conditions, you know, seem very far afield. But these women are experiencing um, the, the circumstances to lead, that lead to those big events every single day.
0: In Bangalore, factories tend not to have these structural and safety issues. But that doesn't mean workers aren't facing hardships.
2: Where the Indian women report trouble is in terms of experiencing verbal abuse. Over 80% of the Indian respondents uh, reported verbal
1: abuse. Supervisors uh, yelling at these employees, these women. The the insults can can range. I mean, I will, you know, sort of self edit for public consumption. But, you know, you have women being told that they're working like, you know, that they're like dogs and that they're not going to have a future if they don't work faster. They're they're constantly getting pressure. You know, um they're they're yelled at if they go too slow. They're yelled at if they're late. And like I said, this is really common in India. We see it in Cambodia and Bangladesh as well. We have women who've had things thrown at them or, or have been hit um, in the factories.
0: Life at work for many garment workers sounds like hell. But what about when they come home? What challenges are they facing once the working day's over?
2: They go home they don't have a lot of time. They are uh, having to manage their money very carefully. If it's during the rainy season, they'll have to do with uh, deal with leaky roofs. They have children to look after. They have to worry about the extent to which their children are getting an adu- adequate uh, education. And so all of this creates a situation that where... They are managing, but they are managing under duress.
1: And just like, you know, sort of anybody in the U.S. or Europe, when you're faced with sort of limited time, um, a difficult workplace, and, you know, limited, you know, sort of financial flexibility, um, you worry. And and so these, these women worry about a lot of things. They worry about... Um, whether they can keep their kids fed or, you know, keep their kids healthy.
0: And how do gendered cultural expectations come into all of this? In the last episode, we heard how women were doubly burdened. So what does that actually mean?
1: There's sort of these cultural elements about you know how much bargaining power they have within the household. You know they work you know 50 hours a week and they're responsible for all the chores. I've been in interviews where you know conversations with garment workers where both the garment worker and the husband is present. And I'll just ask outright you know like you know does your husband help with any of the chores? She says no. It's like I, I have to do it all.
0: There really is a huge amount of stress on these garment workers from all aspects of their lives.
1: You know, that doesn't include all the one-off stories we've heard about kids who have broken, you know, their legs. And so mom has to go leave the factory to try to get them to the doctor, but has to pay, you know, extra money because, you know, the state health insurance is useless and, and things like that. I mean, our, our data is full of those, you know, and I, I think it's a great testament to the, these women that they, that they you know, push, push through this stuff. Garment workers are
0: financially unstable. They work in dangerous conditions. They experience abuse at work. So why do they do it?
1: There's sort of at this weird crux where, uh, in terms of the economic opportunities that are available to uh, a woman that doesn't have a lot of formal education, especially in patriarchal societies, um, garment work is is comparatively good from a economic perspective um, we've talked to a lot of women um you know asked this question explicitly about if you didn't do garment work what else would you do um and a lot of them are like sort of the reaction is i don't i don't know i mean there's nothing that i could do that would pay me more than i'm getting paid now um so they could go you know, they could go farm, they could go try to start their own, own shop, they could try to go do these things. We've had some women who've tried to go start their own little shops and have ended up returning to garment work because, you know, that's, that's a hard life too. And so the women who are in this position and who've in these positions and have been there for a long time have made, uh, made a trade-off, um, that they are, you know, going to work in garment work because it's the best economic opportunity, even if it's not, um, the best opportunity in terms of, you know, their ability to spend time with their kids and things you know, things like that. Now on the other side of that is that you you it is sort of a, a a dead end in the sense that, you know, they're not there's not tons of upward mobility.
0: And that's seen in the stories of some of the women that have been profiled in the Garment Worker Diaries project. Take Usha, for example. She works in an Indian garment factory in Bangalore, and her supervisors consider her one of the most experienced workers in the factory. But they've also told her repeatedly that a woman such as her, with so little education, cannot hope to be promoted, despite her high quality work. So she continues to labour over a sewing machine each day. She has no prospects for advancement she must fund her children's education if they are not to face the same dearth of prospects as she does.
1: Usha is, you know, doesn't have a lot of formal education, um, but values education highly. I mean, she's a a really smart woman, great to talk to, and she wanted to advance. Um, and part of the reason why she wanted to advance is that she wanted to set an example for her daughters. I mean, she talked frequently about wanting to be able to send them to school and then, you know, for them to be able to watch her work and show that hard work pays off and sort of that sort of traditional story. And it was just frequently denied every single time because she didn't have enough education.
2: Because the, the women are working these long hours, they have no real opportunity to advance themselves. There aren't good adult education systems in place to enable that to happen. And it's extremely difficult when you're working six days a week, eight hours, 10 hours a day, to find the time to educate yourself. So the women themselves are facing a a huge roadblock. One of the things you have to keep in mind is that we are experiencing rapid technological change, and it's unclear what garment production will look like in 10 years' time. Uh, it may be that automation uh, creates uh, a very different uh, kind of workplace uh, garment production process. Uh, we, we're already hearing about uh, you know, 3D printing of suits. So we have to be cognizant of the fact that technology is changing. And so I wanna pick up on the last point that Eric was making about the huge roadblocks to getting education. And so um, there's a real concern that there's not going to be a real improvement in the education system in these countries over the next 10 years. That can enable their children uh, may not be ready for the next um, technology that comes into this industry. They may not be ready to be able to work there and may, as a result, suffer considerable economic hardship.
0: What's the solution then?
2: We know that education works in terms of improving people's lives. So education, the provision of education, of quality education, both for the children of the garment workers but also for the garment workers themselves, is critical in this regard.
0: And what else can be done to improve garment workers' prospects?
2: The, the second piece of this, of course, are the, the more um, traditional pieces, but the one I would like to highlight is freedom of association and the ability of women to engage in collective bargaining.
1: I think Guy's right that uh, collective bargaining is a is, is a big deal. In the United States, in the early 20th century, you know, we had factory disasters too, and at the same time, we had you know this this labor rights movement start, um, and that you know really built a lot of energy and took a long time. I mean, it took you know course of you know decades. I mean, we're talking on scales of decades, fifty years to to create really really robust you know sort of institutions. Um, so I think I think that that is one way
2: they can actually through their unions through their associations demand uh, the time and the infrastructure to get themselves educated so that they can be prepared for what's coming down the road there are many many things that could be done in this sector but if I was to choose two it would be around ensuring Quality education for children and adults, and ensuring freedom of association so that GAMA workers can bargain collectively and effectively uh, to improve their lives.
0: As history has shown, progress is possible even if it's over the period of many years. But, as Guy and Eric have alluded to, there's no silver bullet solution. And there's a wealth of ideas and suggestions for how to push for justice for garment workers around the world. And that's exactly what we'll be exploring in our next episode. So don't forget to download episode three to find out what you can do to be part of the change. Please subscribe to the Fashion Revolution podcast channel on Acast, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and please give this podcast a good rating and review it if you can because it'll help others find us. Follow this podcast series on social media using hashtag Worker Diaries or find us at FASH underscore REV on Twitter and Instagram or at facebook.com Forward slash fashionrevolution.org. This podcast was produced by Claire Crofton and Boom Shakalaka Productions in collaboration with Fashion Revolution and Microfinance Opportunities with support from CNA Foundation. This podcast was recorded at The Pod. At White City Place in London. Our original theme music was produced by Katie Morley. We would like to thank all our contributors Ursula de Castro, Eric Noggle, Carrie Summers, and Guy Stewart. Thanks also to Conor Gallagher, a researcher from Microfinance Opportunities and Heather Knight, who designs everything for Fashion Revolution.